Good morning. It's Palm Sunday, but where I'm at today, it's Tuesday afternoon. And we're standing right out in front of the monastery in Ferdinand, Indiana. This is a Benedictine monastery, and this is the place that I want to deliver the message for Palm Sunday in 2020. Now, there's three images that I want you to see this morning. The first image is the Word of God that I'm holding in my hand as the wind is blowing everything this morning. The second image is the sword. I'll pick it up and I'll show it to you in just a second. But obviously, the third image is the Arch Abbey behind me. I want you to have all three of those images locked into your mind today as you listen to these words from Scripture. I think you'll understand by the end of just a few minutes here. Okay, let me begin. This is the Gospel of Luke. This is after Jesus has already done the Last Supper. He's already washed their feet. Peter has already said to him, Lord, you're not going to wash mine. And, and uh, Jesus has said to Peter, Peter, I have to wash your feet. This is Jesus now talking to his disciples. Listen, Jesus asks them a question and he says to them, when I sent you, when I sent you out without a money bag, when I sent you out without a knapsack, did you lack for anything, he said? And the disciples answered him. Listen to what they said here in, in uh, this Luke, the 22nd chapter. They said to him, Lord, we lacked for nothing. So he says, now whoever has a money bag, go get it. Likewise, he says, whoever has a knapsack, go get it. In other words, you're getting ready to go on a journey. And before I told you, you don't need a money bag. You don't need a knapsack. And we remember that. Jesus sent them out two by two. And he sent them out and he said, don't take anything with you. And anybody that you meet, if they give you those necessities, bless that house. Remember, but they were supposed to, to brush the dust from their feet if, if uh, they weren't provided for. Well, this time he says, take your money bag with you. Take your knapsack with you. But listen to this. He's going to add something to it. He says, likewise, any of you that has a garment, remember that's the outer cloak, that's what he took off before he put the towel around himself and washed their feet. If you have a garment, a cloak, he said, I want you to take it and I want you to sell it. And this is what he says, take it and sell it and buy a sword. And he says, does anybody have a sword? And the disciples said, Lord, we have two swords. And Jesus' words, that's enough. Now, this is why he said they needed to do that. He said, my time is numbered when I will be numbered with the transgressors. In other words, they're hearing from him, somebody is going to come and try and arrest him. He's going to be accused of something. He's going to be convicted of something. And he's just told them, sell your garment, take your money, take your knapsack, buy a sword. So what do they do? They look around, they say, Lord, we have a couple swords. And so we have image number two. We have the sword. Now, here's the thing that, that a lot of people may not know about me. I love weapons. Okay, I love shotguns, rifles, pistols, 
any kind of firearm, I absolutely love to shoot firearms. I love the bow and arrow. If you've ever been with me at camp, you know that. But here's the other thing that I really, really enjoy. I enjoy the martial arts. Especially, I enjoy Filipino martial arts. You see, the Filipino martial arts is a martial art that's a little bit different. You've got Kung Fu, you've got Taekwondo, uh, you've got uh, Jiu Jitsu, you've got all kinds of martial arts out there. Most of those have to do with empty hand, open hand combat. Well, the Filipino martial arts do the same. You begin by learning open hand, empty hand combat, but you graduate and you begin to learn to fight with knives, daggers, swords, bow staves. You learn to fight with all of the weapons of the martial arts fields. Well, today, we're talking about the image of the sword. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus has just told his disciples to sell their cloak and buy a sword. They've said, Lord, we have two swords. He said, that's enough. Well, the question that I have, that's enough for what? They go to the garden, they pray. After they pray, Judas leads all these guards into the garden and they're all armed, right? They're the temple guards. Now, these aren't Roman soldiers. So these aren't guards that have big swords strapped to them and are carrying big shields. These are temple guards. These are guards for the average person in Jerusalem. And you've got disciples that have two swords. And we know what Peter does. The guards come and they're very threatening to Jesus. And we know that at that time, Peter draws his sword, he steps forward in a very aggressive way, and he cuts off the ear of one of those guards. Now, here's the thing that's strange about this. Jesus has just told them, take your sword. So obviously, Peter had one of those two swords, right? Jesus walks up, he takes the ear of the guard that that has been wounded, he puts the ear back on that guard's head, and then he turns around to Peter, who's sitting there expectantly with his sword, and he says, Peter, what are you doing? And I can just imagine, if I had been Peter, I, I would say, Lord, I'm doing exactly what you just told me to do. I've got my sword, they came to take you, it's time to fight. And Jesus, gently pushing Peter's arm down, I can almost see it, says, Peter, don't you understand that if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword? And I can just imagine Peter as he looks at the Lord and says, then will you please explain to me what I'm doing with this thing? There's the question. On the Sunday before Holy Week, on the Sunday that's going to lead us to our Lord and Savior being crucified on a cross, what did it mean when Jesus said to them, he who has a garment, sell the garment and take a sword? Well, here's the thing about swords. Everybody, the first time I ever picked one up in my my training, the instructor uh, looked at me put a sword in my hand. This is the practice swords. This is very, very hard, hard plastic uh, that you can beat on all day. And put this in my hand. And he said, now, Tim, what do you think the first thing that, that you need to do? And of course, I'm ready. I'm ready to take this sword and I'm ready to beat on something, right? That's what we do. And the first lesson that he taught me, I said, well, 
I'm assuming I'm going to learn how to swing this thing. He said, no, the first thing you need to learn to do, Tim, is to run away. And I looked at him like he was crazy. And I said, what do you mean? I got a sword in my hand. What am I going to run from? And he says, the number one objective in a fight is to get out of the fight. He said, if you don't learn that about a fight, he said, you're going to lose every time. He said, because the person that fights is not the person that wins. He said, the person that wins the fight is the person that figures out how to avoid the fight. And can I tell you that every lesson I've ever had has in some way talked about how I will use a knife, a sword, a staff, or ultimately an empty hand, because this is what you learn. You learn that the most basic weapon anybody has is an open and empty hand. And you learn that more, the more severe the threat, the greater the extension of that. And so if you need a sword, it's because somebody is coming at you with a sword. Police learn this. It's called use of force. The first thing a police officer does when he pulls you over is not to draw his service weapon. The first thing a police officer does is he tries to disarm you with an, an attitude and an easygoing personality. They'll say something like, so do you know why I pulled you over? Now, if you get aggressive, they get more aggressive. If you get out of the car, their hand is liable to go to that service weapon because they've been trained in use of force. The military trains our soldiers in this. Martial arts trains you in use of force. Now, let's step back into the garden. The guards have come up to arrest Jesus. There are two swords. Do you really think that what Jesus meant in that room when they had finished their meal to, was to say to his disciples, we're getting ready to go and fight a war. How many swords we got? We got two, Lord. That's enough. Enough for what? To fight the Roman legions? To fight people that knew how to use swords? At best, what Peter knew how to do was swing a sword. Peter was not a trained Roman soldier. So he got a lucky shot in on a temple guard. Had that been a Roman soldier, I can tell you exactly what that Roman soldier would have been trained to do. Had Peter come through, the Roman soldier would have been trained in exactly what I have trained for with a sword. That Roman soldier would have either had a shield on his left arm and he would have simply brushed the sword out of the way. Or if Peter had been coming down, the Roman soldier would have very quickly stepped in and he would have countered that blow. And when he did that, I guarantee that Peter would not have been able to counter the blow that came back this way. You see, what my instructor has always tried to instill in me and what I want to talk about here for just a minute is that the sword is not primarily an offensive weapon. Targets for a sword are not head and chest. Targets for a sword are hand, wrist, and arm because the idea is to get the sword out of your opponent's hand. If you can get his sword away from him, then you have the advantage and the fight can end. Now, what does that have to do with standing in front of a Benedictine monastery on Palm Sunday? Well, this is what that has to do with it. This monastery is named after a man called Saint Benedict, lived around 600 
600 AD. Now, if Jesus died in about 33, that means roughly 550 years later, we have a man by the name of Benedict who's going to decide what's important for him in life. We know that before Scripture is finished, Jesus is going to teach not just while he was with us here, but also in the book of Revelation. He's going to say it to Paul, and Paul is going to pass it on to us. He's going to say, let me tell you what the true sword is in life. And Jesus is going to say, the sword is the word of God. So when Jesus says, sell your garment and buy a sword, What lesson is he trying to teach his disciples on that night? That they're going to go through life and and need a piece of metal in life? Or that they need to understand what it is that's going to become the weapon that they will use in this world. Not the weapon of aggression. Remember, any Roman soldier would have known that the primary purpose of a sword was not to just kill the other person. The primary purpose of a sword is first and foremost to be a defensive weapon against attacks that are coming at you. And if you can disarm your enemy, then you can subdue your enemy. And then you might not even have to kill them. St. Benedict figured this out in 600 AD. Here was St. Benedict's model. It's a good German motto, by the way. And it's why a Benedictine monastery was built right in the heart of German territory. He said, pray and work. Pray and work. Now, the prayers of the 600s were different than the prayers of today. The prayers of today are are all extemporaneous, right? We expect the preacher to be able to get up there and just say a good prayer to us. In 600 AD, prayers were not extemporaneous. Prayers were a means by which we read the Bible into our lives. Prayers were the words of Scripture that we would say morning, noon, and night in what we called the offices of the church. When this monastery was built 150 years ago, it was built in the 1860s, and since that day to today, they have morning, noon, and evening offices. And you know, their prayers are not extemporaneous. Their prayers come from the word of God. Why? Because Christ said to us, my word, you need to hide it in your heart. And just as surely as all of the hours of practice where my instructor has told me, these are the practice swings that you need to do over and over and over again so that when the time comes, you don't have to think about what your response is going to be. Benedict said, so also... Your prayers need to be that sword. They need to be that which is so much a part of your life that when you need them, they're just right there. Not because you attack somebody with them, but because they will disarm the enemy. They will disarm Satan. They will disarm that person that's coming at you. Duffy's going to talk to you in just a few minutes about an Old Testament scripture in Nehemiah. Duffy said, Tim, this is what I want to speak on today. Do you have anything you can say about this? And I got, I got pretty excited when I had the opportunity to actually talk about something that I really love, swords. Because he's going to talk about the fact that in Nehemiah, God is going to call Nehemiah to say to the people, 
I want you to work with a sword in one hand and your work tool in the other as you rebuild a wall. I want you to look at the walls of a monastery that were built. These are strong, high, tight walls. Benedict knew back in 600 when they were building monasteries like this. They knew when they built this one. We know today that the only true defense in this world is the sword of the Spirit, the sword of God. It's the Word of God. And so I'm looking forward to hearing what Duffy has to say about these people that were going to rebuild a wall around Jerusalem with a sword in one hand and their, their tool in the other. I want you to think about from the New Testament lesson today. Jesus, Peter, swords, and what it means for us to be ready to give an account, to defend to have the Word of God in our hearts, that sword of the Spirit, that sword that's going to come down, it says in Revelation, at the end of days, is not primarily a weapon of aggression. It's first and foremost that weapon of defense. It's the weapon that shields us from blows that are going to come. It's the weapon that can bring healing as fights can end, not begin. You see, I think my instructor is right. First and foremost, run away. First and foremost, learn to use the weapons at your disposal for protection, for defense, and to end the fight. Jesus used the weapons at his disposal to end the fight. For him it meant the crucifixion on a cross. For us, it means everlasting life because in that one blow, he defeated and he conquered his worst enemy. Amen and God bless. So I remember exactly where I was when Kinley asked me to speak this morning. We were standing at the info desk after a youth group meeting and... I remember she said, hey, can, can you talk on the 5th? And I was like, sure, no problem. We went and checked the calendar, came back out in the entryway, and I'm high-fiving folks walking out of youth group and shaking hands of people coming out of Bible study. And there were a couple of boys wrestling in the hallway and, and a lot more than 10 of us gathered. And that just seems like forever ago. It's weird. Now, I can't remember the last time I high-fived somebody. I use a Lysol wipe whenever I have to put gas in my car. And not that I'm using a lot of gas anymore. And I'm used to interacting with people as little grids on my laptop or my phone. And sometimes in my pajamas, I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, what a difference a day makes, huh? And just like everyone else, I'm trying to work my way through this. I'm, I'm trying to adjust and, and try to you know, rationalize how to think about this. I'm trying to teach my classroom kids using Google Classroom and, and, and encourage them online. And, and we're doing youth group meetings through Zoom and trying to, you know, to make all that work. And those are, those are pretty entertaining. But just like everyone else, I'm trying to make sense of this. And as I do, I kept coming back to one scripture. 
when I was preparing for this morning, there was one thing that just kept going through my mind. I wanted to find something that would relate to everyone. Um, so we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, the fourth chapter, if you want to go there. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background first. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah until the ninth century were basically considered one book. Okay, because there's a common theme that goes through them. It's the return of Jewish exiles at a couple different points in time with different purposes, different callings by God. So first, Zerubbabel comes back, okay, and his job is to restore the temple. That's what he's called to do. And then we have Ezra, and he's called back to like purify the people and, and restore the community. So that was his calling. And then we come to Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is called back to restore the walls surrounding Jerusalem for its protection. But Nehemiah runs into some opposition. So let's pick it up at verse 1 in chapter 4 of Nehemiah. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Even though they were being jeered and taunted and ridiculed, the people had a mind to work. That's such a neat phrase. And, and think about that today. Look at the people that have a mind to work. Look at the people and the good things that they're putting their hands to. Look at our doctors, our nurses, our EMTs and our healthcare workers that are meeting this virus head on. Look at our researchers and scientists and developers that are, that are trying to come up with these tests and distribute them as quickly as possible. Look at our truck drivers and our grocery store workers and our fast food workers doing all they can to keep supplies stocked and to keep us fed. So you've heard it said already, we are in this together. But I want to spend a little time on a different group of folks today with this scripture. I want to spend some time on the decision makers whether we're talking about the highest levels of government, regardless of party, our state reps, our small business owners who are just worried about their customers and their employees, our families that are, that are trying to make these tough decisions to keep their loved ones and their communities safe. I'm praying for you. There's no blueprint for this. There's no precedent and there's no protocol. We're all doing the best that we can. The people have a mind to work. We as Christians are called to be builders. We should be and are doing what we can to build the kingdom of God and glorify him through all of this. And I think this is the real reason why I kept coming back to the scripture because of the ridicule and the jeering, uh, just as they were trying to build. So just like you, I'm processing my way through all of this and, and I'm trying to think, okay, how do I feel about some of these things? So even though there's been so much good, there's been some bad too. 
Okay. So <laughs> I feel for my seniors, my kids that are losing this special time in their life that they're not going to get back. They're missing out on moments with friends that they've had basically their entire lives uh, because soon they're all going to be scattered in different directions. And they've had no real time to prepare for it. And then to go with that, I've seen people that are belittling those thoughts because they say, oh, you know, that's not a real hardship compared to others. Then there's people that are heartbroken over celebrations that they were going to have with their families. And, and now they've been postponed or canceled and through no fault of their own. Like I know I've, I've got a little girl in my classroom, a little fifth grade girl, and she's getting ready to have, uh, she was getting ready to have a baby sister and she would bring in the ultrasounds and we would get so excited. And, you know, we just couldn't wait for that day when her baby sister came and she could bring in the picture and show it off to the class. And, and it was going to be such a neat moment. And that moment's not going to happen. That's been upended through no fault of her own. And again, there's people that, that look at things like that and, and they say, that's not really hardship compared to the grand scheme of things. So I'm trying to process through all of that and figure it out and how I feel about it. And so you've got these people that have to make these overarching decisions that affect lots of people. And then you have folks that just simply want to critique those decisions with, with no better solutions. Then you've got folks that are concerned and upset about an interrupted life. And you've got people that are belittling those concerns, looking at it in a relative sense. And I'm trying to make sense of, you know, how do we respond to this? And I'll be honest with you, 99 out of 100 times, I'm the you need to suck it up guy. I'm the just, you're fine, keep going. But this time's different. And let me show you why. Let's go to verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand who held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. So let that visual sink in for a second. Okay. You've got builders working on the wall, working on the kingdom of God, building up the kingdom of God. You've got leaders behind them, protecting them. You have people that are working and in one hand, they have a brick that they are using to build the kingdom of God. They're working on building the kingdom of God. And in the other hand, they have their sword that they are using to protect. Okay. Both have to be present. The idea is that when you're doing this, you have to be protecting your thoughts as you build. So to my seniors, we're going to get through this. And this is how I know this. To my seniors that are missing out on this time, I feel for you. 
my heart breaks. It really does. Um, it just sucks. I wish I could make it better. I can't. I also know that there are people that have, are going through and have been through worse. And that's okay. Because this is what ties it all together. When I'm talking to someone about, you know, all just all the this these weird things that are happening and, and all the the undecided things, because right now we are have an uncertain future. We have stress about the economy. We have, you know, uh, worried about our jobs, worried about everything. So it just goes on and on. And it's OK for those concerns. But when I talk to people, I have to remember that I am building the kingdom of God. When I talk to them about that uncertainty, I have to make sure that I am telling them also that even though I don't know why this is happening, what the, the best course of action is, I also know the one who does. And I know the promise that he gave me for my future. And that's what I have to focus on. I have to have my sword to protect my thoughts from spiraling into all the negatives and just focusing on the negatives. And then I have to, at the same time, have my hands building the kingdom of God. So whether you are encouraging someone through an online contact or you're delivering food or you're just reaching out in some way to someone to make that connection, be about the building of the kingdom of God. If we only focus on those fears, then we are not protecting our thoughts. The scripture says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then there's the decision makers. I've seen folks share this and I love this, this story. Uh, Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood uh, shared a story about when he was younger and, and terrible times would happen or, or bad things would happen in the community. His mother would always tell him, look for the helpers. Because in rough times, there will be people that always rise up and help. There will be people that sacrifice for others. And he said that that always brought him peace in tough times because when you see the people that are willing to help, it, it encourages you, it lifts you up. And he was always amazed and surprised at how many people were willing to rise up and help in times of crisis. And I love that thought. It's encouraging and it gives hope. But I want to add one thing to it. Look also and pray for the decision makers. The decision makers in the government, the decision makers in businesses, and the decision makers in our homes. Pray for them. Pray that God would lead and guide them to do the right thing. Encourage them. In difficult and challenging times, it can be really easy to simply critique the concerns and decisions of others because they're not your concerns or decisions. But we're not like that. As Christians, we were made for this. We were made to be the givers. We were made to be the friends that listen. We were fearfully and wonderfully made to be the encouragers, because we know where hope comes from.
Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we're just turning to you. We, we praise you in these times and all times because you are the one true God. You are the one um, that set the boundaries, that, that, that created it all. And we trust in your plan when, when we don't understand it. We thank you for our future with you. And we thank you for the day that is to come because there will be a great day when we are all back out in the sunshine and we're all together again. Um, and that'll be a glorious day. And we also thank you for the day that is to come when, when we get to be with you. We ask that, that through this, the, these next few weeks, these tough weeks, that, that you be with us that you give us strength, you give us patience for, for those around us. You give us wisdom to, to make the tough decisions, to do the things that we need to do to honor you in every circumstance that you place us in. And we thank you for, for every blessing that you've given us, the blessings that we see and the blessings that we don't see. Give us the courage to be truly your ambassadors to the world. And all God's children said, Amen. <laughs>